with you and I for the Kenai. I'm here today with Coburn and Eric, and we have another guest with us to tell us uh, her recovery story. Amber, how's it going today? It's another beautiful day in paradise. <laughs> yeah? Yeah, yeah. Awesome. All right, so just to get started, Amber, um, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Well, I'm Amber. Uh, I'm 31, I think. Mm. Uh, <laughs> I'm originally from Nome moved here to Kenai in 1999 and I've kind of bounced all around since then. So. How old were you when you said you moved here in 99? I could do the math, but how old were you? I was like 12. About 12. I think 12, yeah. So that must have been hard. Um, I, I mean, I'm just obviously like outsider guessing, don't mean to like assume too much, but I assume life in Nome is different than life here. Absolutely. Right? It was so crazy because, um, you know, in a small, small town like that, we had three school buses that were red, green, and blue, you know, and um, I moved here and it was the beginning of sixth grade and I didn't know where I lived here in Kenai. Everything was so big. It was stoplights. It was just crazy. Mm -hmm. um, my first day of school was really overwhelming. I didn't know anybody. It was 20 different buses. I didn't know where I lived. It was a really hard experience to, yeah. to move from everything I'd ever known and um, to live here. So Yeah. yeah. I knew when I was uh, about 12 or 13, I, I believe, um, I moved from a small town in Montana, in like south central southeast Montana, uh, Hardin, Montana, which is like, you may know Battle of Little Bighorn, like so like Custer's Last Stand, like right... Uh, right like on and in some ways in or a little bit outside the like, like very large reservation in Montana the Crow Agency reservation and then I moved in it to uh, western Montana to Bozeman Montana and it wasn't like I don't think it was as large of a I certainly don't believe it was as large of a change as a gnome to Kenai but I know that it was a large change significant cultural differences and in maybe some more like you know complex or like finer ways you know not huge differences but all that to say like it was a big adjustment for me and like looking back like I think at that age like you don't really you, like you know that something's hard but you don't know exactly what it is and like looking back I think like that was a hard experience for me like those were that was a big adjustment to make um, so that's all to say like, I could imagine that's that's a tough a tough experience from like, moving and trying to adjust? It was extremely difficult. Um, I think maybe, and now that I look back at it, I've never really seen it like this, but um, that's kind of where where my struggle began, actually. Mm -hmm. um, when I moved here, there was a lot of a lot more influences everywhere. I started smoking cigarettes when I was like eight, was like last day, second grade, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. So, I mean, it kind of started back then, too, and, and, right. and I tried alcohol here or there, but when I moved here, it was, you know... Um, How'd that go down, the last day of second grade? Like, like I got off the school bus, and um, I had I had a best friend, her name was Mona, and we went down to... So, in Nome, there's this big seawall of rocks, and there's mm -hmm. this platform where people could take pictures and stuff, and we went underneath this platform, and she started smoking a cigarette, and... She, she's like, do you want to try it? And I was like, okay. Yeah. So I tried it and, and she was like, you didn't even inhale and you're wasting my cigarette. And <laughs> so she, she taught me how to inhale and that's kind of, that's all I remember about sure. the last day of second yeah. grade. Yeah. yeah. Like yeah. I had my backpack and that was it. So, yeah. mm -hmm. and I was smoking cigarettes yeah. and, um, so things like that, I mean, happen to Nome all the time, I guess. Sure. People start doing things really young, but there wasn't like, I don't remember a Nome 
ever being around like pot or yeah. or hard drugs or anything like that. It was just mm -hmm. a whole lot of drinking. Everybody right. drinks. So. Right. But yeah, when I moved here, I, that first or second summer, um, as I started hanging out with older older kids, and they smoked cigarettes and smoked pot and drank, mm -hmm. and um, things just kind of went downhill from there. So you're uh, so you you move here about twelve, and then and then what? You, you go to school here, and I I went to I went to school here, um, and after the first year, I just I really didn't like it. I didn't right. really have a lot of friends, or wasn't really, um, yeah. I didn't. I was kind of you know. I just didn't know anybody. Yeah, um, yeah the connections. Yeah, and um, I've always had a really hard relationship with my mother, so. Um, even before we left Nome, I would spend a lot of time at her sister's house, at my aunt's house. Mm -hmm. uh, I was safe there. Um, you know, there was boundaries and, and um, structure, and, and I really needed that as a kid, and I spent a lot of time there, yeah. Um, so after sixth grade, I left. I left my mother and got on a plane, and then I went back to Nome to live with my aunt, and I did that till eighth grade. Um, so that two years was like, it was amazing, you know. Um, I had, you know, dreams and inspirations. Here in sixth grade, I had one teacher. I had one teacher, my math and science teacher, who um, really pushed me to excel. As much as I didn't want to be there with all the other kids and stuff, she, she told me one time, um, "You're gonna do great things. You're really smart, and you should really apply yourself in this way." So I left. I left there, and I always remembered that teacher and what she told me. So I went back. I went back to Nome, and um, you know, I played sports. Um, I, my all of my friends were there. I did really well in school, and I had you know dreams of um, thriving, you know, academically and, and on the sports. Mm -hmm. um, I had you know before my freshman year in high school, um, there were a couple of like college volleyball coaches that were really interested in, you know, my skill yeah. as a volleyball player. And I remember being motivated like that, like that I'm, mm -hmm. I'm good at something and, and I'm going to thrive and I'm going to excel and I'm going to do, I'm going to, you know, be a scientist or something, right. or a doctor mm -hmm. yeah. or yeah. I'm going to do these things. And mm -hmm. so after eighth grade was over, I came back down to Kenai for four, it was only supposed to be a weekend. And, um, and I, you know, I, I tried smoking pot one time. Um, I mean, I'd done it before, but this time I was like, you know, I'm gonna inhale. I'm yeah, I'm gonna <laughs> inhale. I'm gonna inhale, and so I did, and and I was and I was stoned for like you know three years or whatever. I don't even know how long it was, but it was. I was stoned, um, and I started freshman year out at Skyview High School, and um, and I was there for like I don't know a couple of weeks, and then I just never went back. I just never went back um i started drinking and partying so it was just it was just alcohol and pot then but i mean mm -hmm. i got pretty bad but it was a lot of it yeah. sounds like it was a lot a lot constant mm -hmm. constant and um what so made, what motivated the move back you said it was only supposed to be a weekend i was, I was just stoned i didn't want to go back yeah i didn't you know my my aunt and my uncle were really hard on me they were they were hard on me uh because they expected more out mm -hmm. of me more you know when i was like I don't know how much better I can be. I'm like a 3.8 grade point average. Like, mm -hmm. you know, when I do all of these things and on top, you know, yeah. 
but they always expected more out of me because they knew that I could do more Sounded like for you, myself. You liked that at first. You liked I did, of, yeah, at yeah. first. Mm -hmm. But it was like, um, you know, I came into it. Couldn't wear them. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, I came into like a depression, and and throughout this whole time, like from my moment of birth to to that point in time, you know, I was in and out of foster homes. My parents couldn't take care of me. You know, mm -hmm. my dad drank, and he was really abusive. And my mother um, didn't want to do anything to, to upset my dad. So sure, she just, sure. you know, let it happen. Because, I mean, he would just, like, yeah. yeah, it was really, really hard growing up in that. Yeah. So I was, you know, we were in a foster home, me and my sister. And then my other two siblings got adopted out because they were too young to take care of themselves. So there was no, like, reunification at that point for those two. I can't remember, like, that time period. But I remember we weren't allowed to, like, be with my parents. My dad wasn't allowed to be there. Like he had to leave, you know, and that was a condition for my mother getting us back. So, um, so during that time period, you know, between seventh and eighth, like those two years, those two school years, I was just like, you know, like why, why couldn't my mom take care of me? Like, you know, all these things that happened, I was starting to figure out, like they weren't normal. It wasn't all right. It was really hard going through that. And yeah. when I came back for that weekend and, and I got stoned, it was like, I didn't, I didn't care that any of that happened. And it was such a relief. And then I just went from there. Um, there were a couple of times where my aunt would bring up how my other aunts and uncles thought that like, I'd be, you know, 15 and pregnant, dropped out of high school with like dentures and, you know, a baby daddy that beat me every day, you know? Wow. Yeah. Like <laughs> they said, just like your mother. And, um, what age did they tell you that? I was like, you know, 13 or 14. Wow. So, yeah. Jeez. So it was really kind of heartbreaking. It broke my heart to hear that, to hear mm -hmm. that from people who, you know, should have, could have been really so, yeah. 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 And so, um, so I just kind of held on to that. I held on to that and I drank, I drank a lot. I think, um, uh, like, it's interesting that you say that because it's, I think one thing in like, as we grow up, you know, there's, we both have, I think, like some like hardwired, biologically driven to like our parents or other caregivers that we latch on to, you know, just at a young age that we expect that we're kind of, I think, almost innately programmed to think these people are trustworthy and they're to provide for me. And when that, when, and when, you know, society as well, you know, begins to say, like, these are your caregivers, these are some of the roles, and you assume that these certain, like, that they're going to do these things for you. And when these, from, like, a hardwired stance and, like, a cultural stance as well, when those people that you think are, like, the most trustworthy and the most, like, fundamental providers in your life, when they, when that doesn't happen, I think a lot of some of the, like, general research is that, we come to think, we come to get like a fundamental mistrust in the world almost. Like the world oh, yeah. becomes mm -hmm. not a safe place or the world is perhaps not going to provide. Like there's a fundamental breakdown that can occur from that. That is really hard to come back from. It can be like very shaky, right? It is. And that's to put it lightly. Yeah. That it's, it really has been a struggle in that sense. Um, because I did, I did believe, I did, I did believe that, right. you know, that, um, you know, so like I'm saying, I, you know, I just ran with it. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. I think, I don't remember exactly how long, but there was a point in time where I started drinking like vodka 
in mm-hmm. in bourbon and, and I was just like I was Part just a kid thing. yeah mm-hmm. and I drank it all day every day for I remember it was like maybe a whole summer um, and I got really sick I got really sick from and and I remember there was like winter time in that too like it was really frigid and really cold there were things that happened like uh, I fell asleep on top of a cigarette and I, I burnt the house down like like huh. I, and I only remember a little parts of that I remember mm-hmm. being like why are we in a different place like and, and that was it um, I was hospitalized um, to withdraw from alcohol and then I started again I started drinking again and it was um, the second the second time and I was still just I think 15 um, the second time I woke up in the hospital and there's like a whole big period of time where I, I don't even remember I woke up in the hospital and there was a social worker there and and police the police were there so they were they weren't gonna let me leave the hospital and they didn't know like who my mother was or who my parents were because they wanted to know that because it had been the second time I'd been in the hospital here in Savannah. Mm-hmm. The second time within six months to, to withdraw alcohol and I ended up in a foster home after that. So, so and that was a really big struggle too because I went from, you know, I, I barely done two weeks of ninth grade, supposed to be like my junior year, I think is what it was supposed to be but I was so behind on everything um, I still had to go to school though because that was a requirement as a foster kid I had to go to therapy I had to go to outpatient drug and alcohol treatment um, and I didn't you know at that point I just was like I don't think I have an issue like I don't I think I'm okay I'm fine mm-hmm. you know um, so I still continued to smoke pot I mean I was and I was doing like I was abusing prescription medication, not mine, like other people's, you know. Right. So I did that for a while, and I remember um, during treatment, like I, I had to take UAs all the time, and there wasn't ever a UA that I could pass. So that was over, like, you know, it was supposed to be a nine week outpatient program, and it had been a whole year. I had been going there weekly, and yeah. um, they threatened like a residential residential thing and, and I think it was like I was like 15 when I started going to like AA meetings they didn't really have any here but um, and that was also a requirement for my rehab um, was to go to AA meetings and so I think there was a point in time where I decided like kind of low-key decided that I, I didn't want to continue you know drinking myself to death essentially I didn't want to okay. do that anymore so yeah. uh, but it I still struggled with it. I mean, you know, I'm 31 now and I have almost three years clean, so. Yeah. So, I think, it's kind of off topic, but but on a little bit. Being 16 and attending AA meetings with mostly adults, right? Any, I mean, mostly? Yeah, I think there was a lot of people that thought I was like somebody's kid and I was taking right. along, yeah. But you're, I mean, you are, maybe you have one or maybe one peer in a meeting, right? I mean, maybe another like 17 or 18 year old, right? But for the most part, these people are going to be 20, 30, 40, 50, right? Yeah. Yeah. I believe that a teen being put into like these kinds of situations can be, I think, just for from that perspective, extremely difficult. One, going to the AA meetings, being vulnerable, opening yourself up, like accepting you have Maybe you have some barriers to overcome, though that's going to be difficult in itself. I mean, that's a task in itself. 
But then it says you're 16 and all these people are going to be much older than you, different periods of life. I think adolescence is a, is a unique period in life, right? It's like super hard, yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh-huh. So when I hear, sometimes I, you know, I've heard uh, you know, people that have been like a young, like young and they're thrown into like, not thrown in, but they're in, a, they're in an outpatient or an inpatient with mostly adults. And I think, I think there may be, and I think it's maybe a resources thing. You know, maybe we just, we don't have the resources necessarily for like a, just a teenager AA or whatever. But anyway, I could imagine that would be very difficult. Um, just the distinct differences in life. It wasn't hard to be in the meetings with the like the older people. Mm-hmm. Um, it was hard for me to believe um, that I wasn't ever going to drink again. Right. Like that's, I mean, that's it a was long like, time. Yeah, that is a long time. Like, I didn't know I lived to 65. Yeah. Yeah. 50 years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and, and there were people who didn't believe that, you know, that had a big enough problem to be there. Sure. sure. You know, I've, I've heard, like, I've heard things like, you know, I, I drank more than you spilled and stuff. And I'm like, well, that might be true. But I have, you know, I think I have a little bit of a problem. Right, it was right. like, mm-hmm. yeah. um, it was, it was really, yeah, really different to be the youngest one in the crowd. And there were, there were people that, um, you know, welcomed me and, and told me that if I, you know, I never had to drink again, you know, there was another person there who, I think when I was like 16 or 17, he had just turned 21 and he had, I think three or four years sober Oh, okay. and like, and they celebrated that he turned 21 and he didn't have to go to the bar and party, you know, mm-hmm. like every other, cause like okay. he has a problem yeah. and I think he's That's still, great. he's still clean and sober to this day, but yeah, which is pretty amazing. But I, they have this, you know, they have this like reading about the promises and these things and the promises I, I didn't come to yet. Like I didn't come to a point where. I needed to recover my life. You know, I didn't come to a point where um, all of these, like, I didn't, you know, I didn't have anything to wreck, really. So, yeah. Um, I think some of these, the liter- the basic curriculum, great. Uh-huh. I think, like, um, maybe they've already done some of this, but I think, like, a fundamental adjustment for adolescence, like, in just kind of, like, to meet the same ends might be appropriate, you know? Like, make it a little more fitting to where they're at in life, you know? Well, there's, and there's, I'm sure there's a lot of yeah, teenagers who, who get it and who sure. would do that. You know, sure. I just wasn't one of them um, <laughs> by any means. I don't know, life was really hard. And I, uh, I went, I was in two different foster homes that sent a time in the foster homes. I ended up aging out of the foster care system. And um, these people actually adopted me last year, which is pretty cool. But, oh. Oh, uh, that's really sweet. Yeah. So, and they're, they're my parents. Um, yeah. And, you know, mm-hmm. they've seen me through some really big struggles. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen them through, you know, our struggles as a family. Yeah. Um, partially, mostly. So, and then I have another sister who um, we, you know, aged out together. But um, they saw through a lot, a lot, a lot of things. Um, things that we, you know, in ways that we've affected the family in such a way that it's like, you know, my parents um, have adopted my sister's children, you know. Mm-hmm. Um and they're they're ten and eight, but um, anyhow, I kind of went off on a little bit of a tangent. There. As did I. It's yeah. Okay. <laughs> it happens. So, so the you know, and then also while I was a teenager, um, I remember when we lived in Nome, we did the Dare program, and I remember um, we we talked about how drugs were really bad and like how you don't 
you know, don't, not even once, you know, and I remember being like scared. Yeah. I was yeah. like, oh my gosh, you know, and the first time I ever tried like meth, I was like, oh my gosh, like, and I, I was like, I'm totally going to wreck my life now. Um, cause I really enjoyed being high like that. And it was such a different realm. And I, and I, um, yeah, from that first time that I ever tried it, it really, there was this like stereotype that I had in my mind about it. And, um, it was like from that moment on, like I totally just forgot that I had these goals and dreams and aspirations. And I, um, I forgot that I wanted to do something different with my life. I didn't want to be like, like how, um, you know, my aunts and uncles told me I was going to be. So, you know, I made it a point to like not get pregnant and not lose my teeth, but I totally forgot, you know, I, you know, to this day, I'm, I'm so regretful because I, you know, if I hadn't have just done that one time, if I hadn't, have, you know, been like, okay, I'll try it. Even though I was scared, I was so scared to try it, you know, mm -hmm. I'm really regretful of that. But today, you know, today is a little bit different, um, because I still get to use at least my experience because I never thought or believed that I would be addicted, like that I would be a junkie. Like I never, mm -hmm. never, ever, ever believed that, you know, yeah. I, I had these like great dreams for my life and um and i just you know just on that note that like i absolutely did not have to follow what anybody else set out for me you know i did not have to go with any of that i made my own choices and i did what i did um and today i get to share with people about how um you know i didn't ever mean to become addicted i never ever meant for that to happen mm -hmm. i never meant to like hurt people that i love I never meant to um, hurt the people that love me. Mm -hmm. I never meant any of that. Um, now, with the D.A.R.E. program, what you were talking about was, like, not even once and how that scared you. Do you think that contributed to, you know, you try it once and then you all of a sudden you kind of give up because you're like, oh, well, I tried it once, so it's kind of over? Or did you go into it with the expectation of, I'm just going to do it once and it's never going to happen again? Um, I think after I tried it once, it was like, Okay, I could do this on the weekends. Like mm -hmm. I could do this. Like I'll be, I'll be okay. I could do this on the weekends or just through the winter time or, um, you know, just like a long weekend party. I could, I can manage this. I can. This isn't that bad. You know. It wasn't as scary as you thought it was gonna be, maybe. Right. Well, I mean, I totally believe that I, uh, I could do this, but I don't have to be a drug addict. Right. Yeah. Like I could just, you know, smoke crack on the weekends. Like gonna be okay. You know. Yeah. Um, it definitely wasn't. So there, so there I was, um, almost aged out of the foster care system because I turned 18 my senior year, what was supposed to be my senior year, and like three weeks before graduation, I still needed 12 credits to graduate high school. Um, so, you know, I missed the whole time. Mm -hmm. um, I ended up getting my GED, and, oh. and I was working two full-time jobs, you know, oh. and I was going to make it, I was going to do it. And, and I think that was, nope, no. So, and then... Uh, then I started drinking again, started partying, um, went through like a really bad breakup, like the first love of my life, you know, went through that. That's um, rough. Yeah. 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 I went through one of those too. <laughs> yeah. When I was, so, when I was a teenager. so then it was like the end of the world, you know? Um, and so I started, uh, started, you know, doing drugs. I started smoking oxys, I started smoking meth, um, you know, snorting Xanax drinking alcohol, just partying, you know, when I did that, I, 
I um, quit both of my jobs and I was just running around being crazy with a group of people that I probably had no business with, you know. And then I got to, you know, got to smoking meth all the time. Um, all of the time. That was all I did was just, you know, smoke meth. Um, I came to a point where I was like, I, I think I need help with this and I really don't want to keep doing this. Um, and it was, it was winter time. And I think this was before they started, they started doing this thing where you like have to withdraw completely from drugs and alcohol and stuff. But I went to my parents' house. I went to my parents' house, uh, because I turned in this, you know, just higher than a kite, turned in this, this application for Serenity House. And, um, and they ended up calling, they called and, and said they, I needed to be there tomorrow at whatever time or, or two days from now or whatever. And I went to my parents' house and I just, I stopped, I stopped and I remember I was still coming down because um, I've been high for so long, but I was still coming down and um, I packed a bag and, and I went into to treatment. And uh, back then they had the treatment center on a, on a bluff and it's like log cabin thing. And, I was there for like 60, 60 plus days. Whoa. Um, and the cool, yeah. And the cool thing is that, um, you know, I graduated that part. So I didn't graduate high school and I, you know, mm -hmm. that, but that was the first thing I, you know, finished. I completed it. I was just 18 or 19 then. Uh, and I finished the whole program, outpatient, everything, got my little certificate. And awesome. yeah. And, um, I just, you know, I, I'm still making like reckless decisions because I was still a teenager, you know, I was still young. And I think I, I went that time, that time clean and sober, I went a year and a half. And um, then I started drinking again, and that was it, you know. Yeah. I was still semi functional, uh, but I drank every day, every day for. Was that kind of one of those, those like forever is a long time decisions? You know what I mean? Like, like I'm 20, like I should be able to like, you know, drink on the weekends or like I can do this responsibly. Like, yeah, like, yeah. Well, yeah, I remember being like, oh, I'm 21 now and I think I have a handle on this. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm clean. Like I can have a beer here and there. Mm -hmm. Well, I didn't even start with beer. I was like, well, I totally drink this Jack Daniels right now. Like, or Crown Royal. I'm, I'm okay. Like, mm -hmm. this feels good. I'm doing good. Mm -hmm. Um, doing things with my life. I have a good group of friends. I imagine you probably say like, I don't smoke meth. Yeah. Right, I don't smoke so meth anymore. Yeah, right. To, like, get to, like, yeah, drink. that that actually, um, yeah, I don't do drugs anymore. So right, I'm okay. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. The drugs were really the issue, and I'm okay with alcohol. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah, I heard this. Uh, I'm sure you probably heard something similar, but somebody told me they said, "Yeah, you know, this person been clean for a while." They said, "You know, sometimes people say to me, I think I've said this in a podcast before. They say, oh yeah, sometimes people say to me that." Well, I think I can, I can drink and, you know, not use, like, I can drink, and she says, yeah, you can, like, maybe, like, for a month or two, but probably not long term, like, you know. Yeah, no, I forever. For now. Yeah, yeah. for now. You can for now, right. Um, so, you know, I continued with my path of um, self-destruction there for a while. I drank and drank, and um, I couldn't hold a job. You know, because I was so unreliable and so um, out of control, basically. But I did, I did try to try to keep my life together. Uh, I drank and I drank and I drank, and then, um, and then I ended up. I was, and then I was pregnant. And I think it was like 
Um, and then I was pregnant and all that was it. I didn't drink, I didn't smoke cigarettes, I didn't, you know, everything stopped. And I had this um, amazing little boy and he wasn't really that little, he was like a toddler. Um, but he was like 10, you know, almost 10 pounds, a really short, fat little baby. <laughs> um, and he was like, he was my little everything. Like my whole life was like, this is, this is why I get to, like, I am his mom, and that's the coolest thing ever. Mm. Um, I think I went, so, you know, the whole pregnancy, and then, um, and then maybe about a year and a half, a year, a year after he was born, um, I started drinking again. Like, I, I was, like, drinking little Boda boxes, and I was like, yeah. if I have one, like, I'm okay with this one Boda box, like, you know, because it's like this big. Yeah. Um, and then before I so knew they actually was, fit quite a bit of wine in those boxes. Well, they were the tiny. They were the oh, the, the little the uh, little yeah. ones. Juice box things. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And um, and then there were like different brands. So of course I had to try those too. And then uh, me and my son were living at his great uncle's house in Chugiak, and um his great uncle's kids were there so and they were you know older as well but um so my son's dad uh was stationed in turkey so right like t two weeks after our son was born he left um and he was gone the whole time in turkey um so anyways we were staying there and um it got to be like i would have you know i would go to the store get my one boda box i worked at old navy then part time and um, i would stop at uh, the Fredmeyer liquor store in Eagle River and get my one boda box and go back to the house and drink that and put my kid to sleep. And then I got to be where I would drink that, put my kid to sleep, and then run back to the store to get a boda box, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and then I kind of slowed down a little bit because I was like, that's not cool. Like, I don't need to leave my baby with their cousins, you know, so I can go get more alcohol, you know, especially since I had that one boda box, I shouldn't have been driving, but, um, and then I got to like, remember what it was like to use, to use drugs because before I was pregnant with my first son, um, you know, I would recreationally do drugs on the weekends or whenever I could get away with it, I felt like. Mm -hmm. I remember the exact moment where I tried it one more time. I was like, you know, because I was too drunk. I, you know, drank yeah. like six beers and a boda box. And I was like, I'm a little too tipsy and I have this baby right here. And I was talking to my, my son's dad's uncle's girlfriend. So I know that's like, hmm. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I was like, you know, be really cool right now is if I wasn't this drunk and I had some meth. And she was like, Oh, really? And, um, and then it was, you know, she, she had meth and I did it again. And, and I remember being like, I don't know what I'm doing, but I, you know, the next day, and that was actually the next day I felt so guilty and so bad because I couldn't nurse my child. Um, I couldn't like comfort him in the way that he needed me to because he was still just a baby, uh, because you know, with alcohol, you can wait X amount of time for X amount of drinks before you can nurse again, but you can't with meth, you know, so, um, 
I didn't. I deprived my kid of so much, um, and that was just the beginning of it. So I, you know, continued on to try to get high and be a mother and, and work, and it all got to be too much, and I started leaving my kid with um, his, his great uncle. Um, and just doing doing whatever, you know. I, I got fired from my job because I um, think they knew I was high or something because I couldn't, uh, couldn't focus, I couldn't talk to people. Um, and I would sweat a lot. I would sweat a lot from coming down and there was this like bright, hot lights that was shining on, you know. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, yeah. So that's, you know, this very last time that I went out, I was out for like two years and that's all I did was do drugs, drink. I mean, for breakfast, I'd have like hundred proof vodka. And, uh, there were a couple of liquor stores in Anchorage that knew me, you know, mm -hmm. I'd be in as soon as they opened to get my little pint of vodka. And... Do you think the guilt you felt for not being able to care for your, your kid, do you think that kind of triggered maybe sort of a, a slide back into that? Cause you didn't want to feel the guilt associated with that or or how do you think it transferred from I'm just gonna do this one night because I'm drunk into kind of back into that lifestyle um, what happened with all of that was that I, I I ran with this facade that like I was functioning I was still a good mom my kids mm -hmm. still had food to eat diapers to wear mm -hmm. um, it didn't matter how I got the money to, to do all this for him it just mattered that I was still able to do that for him right um, and what it, ha what it transpired between that first time that I smoked it again to this other significant event, um, was that I, I shot up for the very first time. And so, and that's when things got really, really crazy. And my son's uncle actually, um, made a report against me to Office of Children's Services. So, um, and they don't, they don't take very lightly to reports of, of uh, parents, you know, um, getting high on meth. They uh, take it very seriously. So um, OCS came and removed my child and took him from me, which was really traumatic. And for a long time, I, I held on to that. And I was like, that was a really, they kidnapped my child. You know, that is mm -hmm. so messed up. And I held on to that and I, that was, that became the reason I could allow myself to just fall apart, do whatever mm -hmm. I wanted, you know? Yeah. Um, so my son's dad, um, actually had to, you know, take emergency leave to come back to the United States to take our child. Mm -hmm. Um, and that took him a month, I guess, but I went, um, I got arrested right after that happened because they were, um, trying to like take my child from my arms mm -hmm. and I, you know, shoved a social worker and I got charged with assault. So not only did they just remove my child from me, but um, I was, you know, I got arrested for, for, for that. Um, but I held on to that and I totally used that for myself and with like other people, why I could, why I can allow myself to be, yeah. to do what I was doing, you know. Um, you had kind of a license to fall apart. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that was such a traumatic event. Um, and, and the longer that I move away from that particular event, the more that I get to see how, how it was traumatic for my son, you mm -hmm. know, 
um, he was just a baby and all of a sudden um, all of a sudden he doesn't have me anymore like I couldn't couldn't love him I couldn't take care of him I was mad at him you know for crying or or just or that I couldn't be his mother anymore I don't know so at the end of all of that uh, they ended up you know I I pled guilty to a lesser crime and they dropped the uh, the case the OCS dropped the case that they had against me because my child was in the custody of, of somebody who could take care of him. So my son is going to be six this July 4th. Um, I hadn't seen him since he was a year and a half years old. And last this January, I think was the first time I got to see him since then. So, um, so my timeline's a little bit blurry, a little bit fuzzy, especially through my twenties because I don't, I remember smaller events um, and I remember how I felt then and, and what that was like. Um, I, I went on with this, this I don't even know, uh, rampage I guess. I was homeless, I was unemployable, um, you know, I, I had these limits for myself like uh, I'll only shoot up like every six hours. I don't want to reach junkie status, like I don't, right. and that'd be too yeah. far. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I had these weird like rituals that I would do because I didn't, because then I, I knew that I, that I had become this like stereotype that I um, knew that I absolutely wasn't, even though that's exactly what I was. It was rough. It was really, really rough. And I, and I ran with that, ran with that, ran with that uh, until it was October of like 2015. I got a I got arrested at the hotel here um, with these other people that I really didn't know. I mean, I mm -hmm. I just come down to Kenai. I really didn't like Ke like Kenai then, but I just come down to Kenai to to visit with my sister. I really wanted to get back into the Serenity House program, um, and I was trying to figure out how I can manage that between getting high and. Um, <laughs> how can I get high and go to treatment? Yeah, yeah. like how do I get into treat? Yeah, but I was still like okay, I'll call them tomorrow, you know, and I was still, like, shooting up, but, um, I mean, well, I was... backtrack just a second. I think it's really interesting because, like, one of the things that, you know, we've noticed, like, from these podcasts, and I think that it's important for people to really see, is, and I think that your story is, like, highlighting this perfectly. From these podcasts, what we've been able to see is that it's, like, a very human experience people going from you know just like growing up and then entering addiction like they don't somehow become like a mon they don't be go from they don't enter like a monster status you know like some people picture addiction and there's like a mystical element to it or there's like mm -hmm. this element of like zombie like and like it's very unrelatable i mean there's like human and there's like addict and they're like they're just like totally non-human in some ways that people have a hard time like understanding what that looks like at all and I think you because you're saying you know I'm shooting up and because I don't want to be like that I don't want to be essentially what it sounds like is this monster this like junkie monster yeah. that is the addict right yeah but mm -hmm. really 
you were the addict. I mean, mm -hmm. you were. I mean, you were addicted to drugs, and I mean, whatever, however you want to define addiction, I'm not quite sure how we're going to necessarily super define it. But for nonetheless, we, I think your your story clearly is that you were, you were, you were an addict. I mean, you were addicted, and but what was happening is you're just like I'm not because then I would I can't be doing these things mm -hmm. because I would be an addict. And what that's saying is that like you somehow it seems like half you have to go from like you have to lose your humanity in that. I mean, you have mm -hmm. to like become something completely different than what you were, however, to be this addict, but you were, I mean, you were this. So I think like we have this picture of like a standard human being and then like an addict who is somehow not human anymore. And I think your story is saying, you know, I'm shooting up and, but you're still a human being. You're still that little girl with dreams and aspirations. Like you're not like working toward them at the time, but you are still like a living, breathing, like, person with emotions and a, a desire for connection and all these things that make us human, that make us lovable, that make us relatable, that make us want to love, etc., that define our core human elements are still there. Mm -hmm. You just happen to be like really addicted to drugs at this point. Right. And I think it's just very interesting that we have this, because I do think our society has a fundamental breakdown where we try to understand addicts and we try to understand addiction and there's this idea that like they are like not human anymore there's an element of that that is no longer like in that stage but really it are, it's it's all the, the human beings you know that are at this point like suffering from you know whether it be a disease or whether you know however you want to see this like they are suffering in a way that's a lifestyle that is like of addiction you know so it's just interesting to me that you're, you know, because you say I'm shooting up, but, but if I, you know, if I push it a little further, you know, then I'd be like, you make what, some sudden transfer, but you do like, you shoot up like one more time a day or something and you make some sudden transformation to like this junkie monster. I mean, that's not true. You would right, still, yeah. you know. Yeah. So that's, yeah. And that was like that. I took this belief and I was like, I, I would only do X amount of drugs every so often because, um, you know, I didn't want to, I didn't want to admit that, that I had like a huge issue. I didn't, I didn't want to go there with myself because then I'd have to do something different. I wasn't ready to, I didn't want to. And, um, I just, I wanted to figure out the best way to stay high like that for as long as I could. Um, yeah. Uh, like what Eric was saying, it's, the concept that someone just becomes kind of uncaring and unfeeling is is not what what really happens. What it sounds like in your position, you just kind of want to have it all. Like you want to be able to go through treatment, but still be high. Like still maintain the feeling, but have a, the life that you wanted. And it's just something that's not really possible. But it, it sounds like it's, you just want it all to work and to be able to feel the way you want and not, it's not that you don't care about anyone else. You just, you just want that, you know? That's exactly, yeah. Um, so there I was getting arrested and I had, I have a kid sister who actually um, just finished her first year of high school. She was, or first year of college. Um, but she was, she was younger when this happened. Um, and she, she knew that I'd just come back into town and she asked me, when are you going to come and see me? And right then the cops were like, 
um, well, we just found these drugs in your purse, you know, and I also had a gun. So and they were like, this doesn't look good for you. And, um, then they tried to search my phone and I wouldn't let them, I wouldn't give them a passcode. And that's when they arrested me. And I remember thinking, um, that was probably wise. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I mean I'm like, like, I said no, so no, you don't get to look at my phone. There's nothing yeah. in it, because I, you know. Even if there was, like. <laughs> I'm so paranoid, I keep right. resetting it so right. that there's no information on it, you know, but. Um, yeah. I don't mean to be, like, anti-establishment or anything crazy, but, like, let me see your, no, no. <laughs> you yeah. know. Right, you anyway. don't need to see my, I already said right, you could right. search my purse, which is fine, but. Sure. I was like, there's just pennies and a hair scrunchie in there. You have all the evidence there. you need right here. Yeah. 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 I currently yeah. have meth. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, uh, and I remember thinking, I was like, man, this is really going to get in the way of me getting a treatment. Yeah. Like, this totally is messing with my plan right now. And little did, little did I know. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, this I'm still really, trying to get high. This for... is really but I come to this point and, and I felt like, like I was still okay and that, um, I hadn't reached junkie status yet. And one of the ladies that, that I'd known since I was 15 years old, I remember being, I, they had to put me in this whole different cell. Like I, cause I couldn't function i guess i don't know i was like i don't know why you guys put me in here because i was i was sleeping just fine in that other room like um but they they put me in there and she she told me not too long ago maybe about a year ago she's like you know i didn't even recognize you she was walking in to the facility to to do a meeting there and i recognized her but she looked in there and the look on her face, I just was like, this is how people see me now. Mm-hmm. And she just walked in and there's this like little tiny window and she just walked right past it and came back and was like, is that you Amber? And I was like, hi, you know, and I was, um, I guess I was incoherently like mumbling or something. and. She told me, I was scared that you had lost yourself completely. And and I was like, you know, I didn't feel like I was that bad. I didn't feel like I was, I felt like I had a pretty good control on it. Mm-hmm. I think you have, I think like what we hear a lot is like when you're in that addiction, like there's a, there's like, I've, maybe it's a disease thing. Maybe it, I don't know what, but like. I mean, maybe this aspect of it is of like the disease of addiction, but like there is, and maybe even non-addicts possess something like this, but like you have a way to really rationalize yourself to some pretty (laughs) extreme places. (laughs) I think that is part of like the disease, you know what I mean? Like your body prioritizing this from a very physical level your body prioritizing this over anything else. And so I think like in your mind, you know what I mean? You have to rationalize it for your body to get what it needs to survive. Like Mm -hmm. it's a very much a survival tactic within your body. You know what I mean? Yeah. You have to rationalize it in order to be able to make that decision to get what you need to survive. Mm -hmm. It was super crazy. Um, So I think I was in there maybe, I don't know, two or three days and I got bailed out. Um, I got bailed out. 
on this program that they had back then called 24-7, and I would just, you know, call a number, and they'd tell me if I had to go into UA or not. So I got oh, out. Like color or number or something? Uh, they would just, these people have to come to the office, and that was the voicemail recording, so... Um, so I went in for the very first, like right after I left jail and I went in there and I already had like a needle and everything waiting in, in the vehicle that I was in. Like I had that ready to go as soon as I left that office, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and so that's what happened. And that was the only time I went to that office. Right. Um, I mean, you had to go back a couple of days later or something, right? Yeah. Um, so they gave me like a, two, like a two or three week grace period sure. to like eventually show up. Um, but I never did, and uh, I, you know. So they, do they reissue a warrant or something? Yeah, they, they issued a warrant for my arrest, and I I just, you know, I, I hid out. On the run. Yeah, but I didn't yeah. even, like, go anywhere. I was so, on, the, on the hideout or whatever. Yeah, I was so paranoid uh, that, you know, the cops were actually after me. Like, yeah, I knew that, you know. The mission is yeah. to find you. Yeah. 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 And, uh, city Kiva. <laughs> <laughs> All right, there was so much in Find her. So and I, I think didn't that's something like worth mentioning and understanding, you know what oh, I mean? Right, like right. from like, from a very just like outsider perspective, you know what I mean? No one who's been like in this is that like, I think people kind of just assume like these are bad people making bad decisions for their lives. You know what I mean? Where it's really like a very physical thing, like the connection in your brain and the disease will absolutely prioritize getting high and using over every single thing thing else. I think that's kind of hard for people to wrap their mind around you. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's just how powerful that really is. I would put myself in like the craziest situations. Um, I remember I went into, uh, so I had this like, you know, dope man who got his stuff from a bigger dope man. Mm -hmm. So, but this one dope man I felt like was, you know, ripping me off so yeah. I was like I'm, I'm just gonna go to so-and-so um and I did that and so I went in there and, and me and the bigger guy were like we were coached we we're good to go and then here comes my guy and he was like gonna blow my brains out with a shotgun like he had it to my face and I was like well, what are you gonna do are you gonna kill me are you gonna shoot me I was like do it and um and he didn't because he was like you're not okay um you're too crazy <laughs> to be killed <laughs> Yeah, he's like, I'm, there's something wrong with you. Um, you're not okay. Yeah. Wow. Um, so things like things like that would happen, and I would just be like, okay, whatever. I got what I needed, you know. Good and, deal. Yeah. yeah. And I'm Same okay. I'm, yeah, I'm good. And um, so, and, and that was, you know, up in Anchorage, and it was like, the town is so big, and, and I felt like I was so observant, and I felt like I was on this, like, you know, fractal enlightenment, like I was woke, you know, yeah. um, really I was just psychotic, I think, but, um, yeah. mm -hmm. but I, I really believe that like, um, you know, a couple of people that, that I would do whatever with, you know, got arrested and, and were getting charged with like dealing drugs and stuff. And I'm like, mm. I used to go to their house all the time, you know, mm -hmm. like what's really going on. So I really believed that like I was being watched or, or that, you know, I could be in trouble yeah. for, for some things. And, yeah. um, so that's why, like, that's why I said, when I got out, uh, on bail and, and I knew that I had a warrant for my arrest, I was like, they're for real after me. Yeah. Um, so I, there was, 
this house that I was at and I never left that I didn't leave that house that whole time. I just stayed high like this. And I ran around with like, um, with like assault rifle, um, like ready to go. I don't know who gave me guns like that, but I had guns. <laughs> I don't know where you got this. Uh, yeah. This is and, a good idea. Yeah. Um, so. Necessary. Well, right. And so, because I didn't need people like stealing from me. I didn't have anything really left to steal. I didn't need people trying to take advantage of me. Um, so I had this assault rifle and I had these other guns and I had knives and, and I was in this one house, mostly in the garage. But, you know, and every once in a while, I'd, I'd go and take a nap or whatever. But um, and it was probably like two months that I was in this in this place. And uh, the boyfriend that I had then was scared of me. And I'm not sure exactly why, but uh, right. yeah. he was he was scared of me. Um, he called the police and was like, I can't do this with you anymore. And called the police and the, you know, the police came and they're the words were like, we've been looking for you for a long time. And I'm like, well, that's weird because I've been in the same house for this whole time. You Not know? very well. Yes. Yeah. I was like, I mean, I've listed this address. Like, I don't know why you guys never showed up. But um, so that was New Year's Day. And um, I spent you know, a couple of months in jail or whatever. I still had those pending charges. Um, and that whole, you know, I had, I think the first, like, month I was in there that's all I did was sleep I slept and ate um, I slept at night slept during the day um, I got up for them to like you know to exchange my laundry and, and to get food and um, I don't really talk to anybody or hang out with anybody I mean it's jail you know um, and and I remember being like you know I don't I don't really care to do this you know um, but I, I wasn't at that point, like, immediately. I was like, you know, this is pretty cush. It's all right. Like, I don't have to answer the phone. Um, they do my laundry. I just, you know, I already have clothes to wear. So I'm golden, sure. you know. I'm saying, yeah, sure. yeah. Um, I could watch TV sometimes, and the food isn't that bad. And um, I got pretty comfortable there mm -hmm. uh, until I wasn't. And, and then I got out, and I was, like, I was scared. I was scared because I didn't want to get – I wanted to get high – but I didn't want to, like it was, mm -hmm. I was safe in jail, you know, I didn't have to, right. you know, run around and manage. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I got out of jail and of course I got high a couple more times, several more, a lot, a lot. Um, and then I ended up being pregnant with my second son who is two now. Um, and that was, that was it for me. That yeah, was, so you're done then. Yeah. You're yeah. Three years. So that means you yeah. used two now. So you got pregnant. And that was it. Yeah, yeah, that was it. And it wasn't. It wasn't like um, I don't want to say that it was miraculous or anything like that because it wasn't. Because it took me, it took me that whole time, um, from the first time that I shot up to that moment of time to be like, I don't want to do this to myself. Mm -hmm. um, I really, I knew the answers, especially because I'd had experience with AA and NA before and treatment. Yeah, you've heard the, the language, the rundown. Yeah, so, and it was just, um, I prayed, I, I, you know, still don't even know what I'm doing when I pray, but I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed, because I, I was so desperate to never, ever have to um, hide from the police again, or, mm -hmm. um, 
or be that paranoid or be that scared or be that angry. Um, I prayed, I prayed to, to find myself again. I prayed to find the life that I wanted, I needed again because, because um, I was hurting myself. There were, you know, there were a couple of times where like my joints, all my joints froze up. And I think that was probably because I wasn't eating and I was just like throwing drugs into my bloodstream. Mm -hmm. um, and I wasn't sleeping. So, yeah. and it, when it was happening then, I was like, I just have a really bad flu, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but you know, hindsight is like my kidneys were probably failing right. or something pretty, you know, um, I never want to go through that again. And, and from the moment that I found out that I was pregnant to, to today, um, I don't want to say that I haven't had the desire to use, but I haven't used. Mm -hmm. um, That's awesome. Yeah. So the, the, the first like year was like, I'm just... You know, I'm not going to do drugs. I'm not going to drink. Kind of did white knuck on it, so to speak. I did. And you were like, not. Nah, I did. I was so embarrassed and so ashamed um, to go back into the rooms yet, you know, once again, you know, 12 years of doing that. And, yeah. and I still don't get it. You know, I didn't want to walk in there and be like, I just got out of, I just totally wrecked my life. Um, I hate myself. And what do I do next? You know, I didn't want to do that. I was so ashamed. Um, so when you're. And you're white knuckling it, and it worked, obviously, I and mean, you are clean today. But do you believe that that was maybe a little bit, do you think your chances of success would have been a little bit better had you been in the rooms? It's hard to say. It's hard to say. Um, they certainly would have would have helped because you, cause now, I mean, I, I still struggle, like, on a daily basis with, with what I'm supposed to be like, how I'm supposed to feel. Um, and, it, and it, the last year has been such a challenge for me, um, mostly because I have this like preconceived notion that I'm supposed to be, you know, this person so buying like buying a house with like you know a seven fifty credit score right. and like you know like all these I was supposed to be this, but I'm you know haven't. I'm still achieving these goals, but the first, that first year, I just wasn't doing drugs. And it was, yeah, it was crazy. Right. I don't do drugs. I'm good. Yeah. It was crazy. Yeah. It was hard. Um, I was scared because, you know, now I have this other baby. My first baby was taken from me. I'm, you know, scared of this and scared of that. And, um, gosh, it was just, and I was still allowed myself to to be in a situation like where my life wasn't healthy at all. Like I still allowed, um, I was, I guess I could say that I was still like in the mindset or mentality of being an active addiction because I still wasn't doing the things that I needed to love myself. Um, I was in a really abusive relationship and I allowed that to continue. Um, until, I mean, it wasn't very long after Sam was born, my son, Sam, um, that I just, you know, I was like, you know, I had enough. Um, this isn't the life that I want. I, I want my child to be safe and happy and healthy. I want to be safe, happy and healthy. And, um, and that's, you know, that's what I did. I made those changes. And, and now I went through an outpatient treatment program, uh, like an intensive outpatient. I don't think that if I, if I was, if I was not pregnant, I probably would not have been successful in that outpatient treatment program. 
the pregnancy really pushed me in the right direction. That's been my motivation is to be, to be a good parent, you know, um, to give my son a life that he doesn't have to run from, you know, that he doesn't have to mask or hide or, um, or numb himself out from, you know, so uh, today that is a big motivation that I have for myself and for my son is that uh, I want our lives to be happy and healthy and I want my son to know that he can do anything he wants, you know, um, I'll still be supportive or I'll still love him um, and I want to be able to foster that for him and, and I want to, you know, my first son, he'll be six in July, um, I want to be a part of his life. It might be, you know, his dad is like, I don't think I'm ever going to be able to trust you with our child again. And, and right in today, I have to be okay with that. You know, um, that's really hard, you know? So, um, that's just my goal is to be a really good mom, uh, to be the person that I, that I, I want to be. And I'm still trying to figure out what that is every day. Right. Um, I just know that being that young kid in AA really did, um, I knew of that solution, like the self-help deal. I, I knew of that, like, and I knew what that was, you know, um, that's part of how I get to stay clean today is I participate in things like that. Um, and I really want people to know That I've seen, you know, for my own story, I did I did have a really tough childhood. It was not a good time, you know. I had a tough childhood. I had a tough time during adolescence and, and still into adulthood. Like, I'm still having a little bit of a hard time. Um, but I want people to know that it, it's not really going to matter if you had a, a good childhood or a bad childhood or, like, every, you know, your parents loved you or whatever. Um, being addicted and being the addict... That's, if you are an addict, that's always going to be the same. Like, I don't know about you guys, but um, it was really hard for me to come to terms that I hated myself. Mm -hmm. I hated myself. And, you know, because who else, who, who does that? A person who loves themselves or cares about themselves um, doesn't put themselves in situations where they're probably going to get their head blown off or... Uh, get shot, you know, or stabbed, um, or, or to, you know, do drugs like that. Like somebody who loves themselves doesn't do that, but being addicted is, it's going to be, I think right around the same struggle. Um, at the, the very end of my using days, like right before I got arrested again. And you know what, when they arrested me, they weren't very nice. Like if you guys can imagine, um, the cops jumped me, um, probably because I like wasn't a safe person, especially considering I was high on drugs and I probably had a weapon, you know, and I did, I did have a gun. Um, they jumped me and I resisted and, and they, then they tased me, you know, like I was not okay. Um, to come to that point, I didn't believe that I was going to be able to fix this didn't know. I was scared. Um, I started believing that, I, that, you know, I was going to be doing something that involved drugs. 
in that that's what I was going to die from. I was either going to like OD or, you know, die from some weird complication like blood infection. Um, or trying to cut out your middleman. <laughs> yeah, 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 or get right. shot by the cops because yeah. I, I had that mentality. I was like, and I mean, you were doing a lot of drugs for long periods of time to where you were, I mean, like you said, quite incoherent despite believing that you were that I was fine. That yeah, you were mm-hmm. fine. yeah. So, do you think that getting the hope back really began with being pregnant, and that's kind of where you've been? It sounds like you're remembering how awful it was, those feelings of paranoia, of, of being chased, kind of, and then you're also focusing on the future of what you want your child's life to look like. I mean, where did it really turn over for you from this hopeless situation where you think, this is how I'm going to die, more or less, like this is going to be my life forever, into, I can do something with my life, I can change it into something that I want it to be, or, or a future for my child, like what really transitioned that? I was, so it was that this little bit of time while I was in jail, I had, I had time to dry out, clean up, um, and get a little bit of something back. This, you got to see the real world for a second. Yeah. This, it sounds like that's a big deal when you're like really in it. Like you said, like I didn't think I was that bad. Like you do to some extent, like not, maybe not me, but a clear head maybe brings a, a little bit of wake up. Right. Yeah, so this sergeant who his job was to make sure everybody was still alive and breathing, you know, um, at a certain time every day. And so he'd come through and, and uh, I'd be sleeping like it was like nine o'clock in the morning or something. I'd be sleeping and um, he woke me up one time. You know, he has to make sure that I'm like still moving or whatever. So mm-hmm. he like, you know, tap my foot or whatever. And, um, he said something, I can't remember what what it was, and he's like, Do you have kids? It's like I have I have one. He's like, Well we'll see if you love him enough to stay away from here. Cause I think the conversation went like, Well, I can't wait to see you back here again, you know, because I was I was like halfway through the time that I had to serve. Um I was like, I won't ever be back here. And he's like, Well, we'll see if you love your son enough for that. Um so it was kind of like, I don't remember exactly how the conversation went, but I remember that I was like, me never coming back here again will never ever have anything to do with how much I love my son. Because I, I think that is the illustrative of just the fundamental misunderstanding yeah. of our society. Disconnect. I mean, yeah. that is like just a true, there's like a one-liner, mm-hmm. like illustrative of just like how misunderstood addiction is. Yeah. You know, so and the addict then in that you know. I yeah, I love my kids. I love yeah. my kids. Um But it, I think a lot of the, the you know, some of the science kinda of says that essentially that your brain essentially essentially in a lot of ways comes to prioritize these over drugs and alcohol in, in ways like more than like to sur- like in a survival way, like more than like food and water and basic shelter and basic like needs, and in as much as like humans are driven toward survival, so it's like the strongest urges that you can possess like are then like shifted toward drugs and alcohol. Exactly, know? that's exactly yeah, um, exactly what happened. Um, so yeah, it wasn't gonna matter how much I loved my children. 
that's always going to be that. Like, I love my kids. Um, and I remember being like, you know, if I get high again, it's not going to be because I don't love my kids. Um, well, Sam wasn't born yet then, but... Um, so now today, you know what? I'm, I'm almost to my three-year mark. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, that's awesome. huge. Um, I've been able to... You know, repair repair my life as much as I can to this point in time um, I I have the opportunity now to you know Skype my my other son yeah. uh, he lives in South Carolina and like I said I, I got the opportunity to visit him in, in January and his dad and his wife and and you know they welcomed me into their home and um, it was a really good good time for all of us and my son and me and his dad, you know, got got to talk about what happened and how that affected him, you know. Yeah. Um, and that was really hard stuff to go through. But um, I've been able to slowly, and it took and it took time, and I had to put more effort into it, you know. And I had to remember that, like every day, I don't ever want to have to struggle like that again. Um, I don't, you know, want to come to terms where where I hated myself and and where I realizing that I become the person that I never wanted to be um, every you know every day I get up and and I think thank God for for the blessings that I have today um, for the work that I'm willing to do for my life today and and hopefully to help others to help others come to terms with um, with being alive and living um, so one of the coolest things about about being in recovery this time around is that I especially get to see other people who, who are getting their lives back, who have mm -hmm. their children back, you know, who have, um, who have themselves back, who get to be mothers, who get to be fathers, who get to, you know, finally move on with their life. There's a lot of friends that I have in recovery that I, I used to use with, and that's cool because I get mm -hmm. to... Um, see them on the other side. Yeah, I, yeah, we all get to see each other in a better place, yeah. um, and that's really cool. Um, today and, and, uh, for a long time for, you know, still to this day, I have used like materialistic things to be the goal to why to, you know, to keep moving forward. You know, like I felt like, um, you know, when I wanted to be a doctor and stuff, I wanted my life to be okay. I wanted to, uh, I wanted to have a house and, and the white picket fence and, um, have my life taken care of, um, and today it's not quite like that. I don't really have a picket fence. I live in an apartment. Um, you know, I drive a mom wagon. Um, but these are all things that I got got to work towards. You know, I got to. I, I've been employed for two years now, which is like amazing because yeah. <laughs> for a while there I, I was not employable at all. Um, the same job for two years. You know, I, I get paid on a regular basis. I, I get to pay my rent. I'm working on my credit score. Um, I get, I get to have a comfortable life today and I get to be happy. I get to choose that every day because there isn't any, like I don't have the cops chasing me. I don't have to worry about getting arrested. Um, I don't have to worry about where I'm going to get my next rig or my next bag. Like I don't have to right. worry about any of that. And that's just amazing. And some days I do forget, I do forget oh, yeah. that's where I came from. And I mm -hmm. let crazy little things bother me. Like, um, the mailman hasn't been to my house and you know, and I'm waiting, I'm waiting for a bill like, cause I want to pay that, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I let these crazy little things that, that don't even matter, um, be a big focus on, on sometimes why I feel like I can have a crap day, you know, um, 
but yeah. I think we move forward, you know, and it's probably, I don't think there's probably really anything like wrong with like, you know, having new goals and like, you know, I guess you like appreciate and are very delighted in the fact that a lot of the problems that you once had, you don't have. And some of the problems you have now don't really compare to the ones you had, but you still, you know, I know you have uh, it's obvious that you have a drive to you know move forward and continue and progress and those I actually like goals and like growth is probably appropriate but it sounds like you know you said you wanted to be a doctor and your life would be okay like you would be okay it sounds like maybe that is not as so much like an outward chasing thing I mean in some ways it looks like that but like you said you had you know hated yourself before and now mm-hmm. it seems like maybe a lot of that is an internal thing, you know? And I think there's probably a balance, you know? Like, you want to have, like, the, these these comforts that help you uh, exist in a way that's, you know, I mean, people want somewhere to live. They want something to drive. They want right. food to eat, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's, like, obvious. But, like, maybe it's something of an internal thing, too, you know? Like, kind of an internal, like, resting in yourself. Not to get, like, ridiculous, but like some of it have been, like, an internal, like, home you know you're kind of like you're okay in your own skin you know and maybe that's part of your journey too and it sounds like that's part of it that's a huge part of my journey because I uh I you know yeah I, I want to come to a point in my life where I'm comfortable and I'm okay and I don't have to worry about where I'm going to go next or um you know when I was using my biggest worries were like how how am I going to be able to say hi um when I was a kid I was like where am I going to go um, and, and now, now that I'm in this life today, um, I don't have to worry about any of that. I, I can say that I'm not quite to a point where I feel comfortable right. with how things are because mm-hmm. it's also really new for me. Mm-hmm. Um, growing pains. Yeah. Um, it's probably won't ever completely go away. Pro- yeah. Cause it, that's a whole, uh, like the life, core, adjustments. <laughs> core beliefs and things like those things that I went through as a kid and like the ideas that I got from it, like, um, like I don't belong anywhere. Um, because you know, I really feel like my mom's family really didn't, I mean, she was the baby of the family. So, um, everybody got stuck taking care of her, her mistakes and like just taking care of her, you know, and us kids were part of that and, and they really resented my mother for that. And that kind of carried off into me, you know, um, so really, and then being in foster homes and things like that, I really felt like I didn't belong anywhere. Like I didn't, uh, like nobody cared for me or loved me. Um, I have these parents and they, they just don't know how to do that. And that was really frustrating. So yeah, but I, I get to be in this moment today and I get to, uh, I get to create that for myself and I'm comfortable with doing that. Um, there's, there's like a sense of peace that I have every day. Um, I get up a little bit, a lot earlier. Like I was up at like 5.30 this morning. And I, you know, and I get up and I make this time for myself in the morning where I'm able to just chill out, you know. And um, I, I don't have to make snacks and I don't have to do laundry. I just just hang out with my cup of coffee um, and go over like my Bible app or, or emails or whatever and just have that time for myself. Um, and, and every day I try to make it a point to, to come to this peace that, that I know that I can have, um, you know, my son, he, he wakes up every morning and he looks for me and he's mm-hmm. like, mom, you know? Um, and that's the coolest thing. Cause I'm like, you know, I, I get to tell him good morning and I get to give him a hug and tell him that I love him. Um, 
that moment of peace that I have every day or those moments of peace that I have every day make time for myself to have. Some days are like they're they're the best best thing that I get to have because it is home. It is home and it is somewhere that I belong and not only is it somewhere that I belong, it's somewhere that my child belongs also and um, you know life is good today. I don't have I don't have a lot of complaints today, you know. Um, I'm really grateful for the opportunities that I have, especially to be able to share my story. My pastor sent me this, this like link thing that you guys did or whatever, this thing about um, telling a story and I was scared for a second. I, I was like, mm, I don't know if I wanna do that. I don't think I'm ready for that yet. Um, Cause I was so worried and ashamed about how, um, do I tell people that I'm an IV drug user or did, is that like, does that freak people out? It freaks me out. I don't know. It freaks me out, you know. Um, and just in our little community, it is so, so hard to see people still struggling, um, especially, especially, um, you know, with like heroin and meth. And I, and I know what it looks like. And I know, um, I know that our community is affected by it. But if I don't get up and share about how you can recover from this and this, this doesn't have to be the end of your story. There's so many people that I know that, that this was their end, you know, they, they died doing this or, or some, you know, I've got a couple of like one guy was like shot and then burned and then like left out in the view. Like that was my friend, you know, mm -hmm. and that was, you know, that was something that had to do with drugs and stuff. So, um, this doesn't have to be what your life is. Like you can come to a point in your life where it's so beautiful and so amazing. Um, and you don't have to hate yourself anymore, you know, and you can help people. Um, that's what it is for me, I think, is that I eventually want to be able to help people. And part of it is letting people know that, hey, um, I'm a recovering drug addict and I used to stick a needle in my arm every day. And if that weirds you out, weirds me out, um, you know, then maybe the story isn't for you, but there are people who need to hear it and there are people who need to know it. And, um, I think families that need to know it too. Yeah. Families know? that need to know it, absolutely. Not just like yeah. those in it. I mean, definitely those in it, but sometimes people around those who are using too are thinking, is this where it all ends, you know? Or maybe this doesn't need to be it, you know? Um, I can only imagine like what, what families feel. Um, you know, after I got clean, my sister still still struggled with, with using drugs and that was her thing, you know? It, it, made everybody tense like what was going to happen to my sister and i always envisioned that like the troopers were going to show up because i'm listed as her next of kin that the troopers are going to show up and that they were going to tell me that you know uh, my sister od'd and died or or whatever and, and that was always such a really hard fear um and i resented her for that i you know i was like how would you do this to the rest to to us you know um she's in treatment now uh, and it's a like year and a half long program She's doing great and amazing. And in that, people need to hear this. Families need to hear this. Um, people who are who are currently struggling with active addiction need to hear this. They need to know that there there is an answer and there is a way to recover. And it's not just the person who uses that's affected. So, um, I mean, with that, I'm, I'm really grateful and uh, happy to be able to share my story with you guys today. Thank you so much. I think it's... You know, this is, I think that's a great way, great uh, place to wrap things up. You know, your story does not need to end here. I mean, your story can go on and you can, it can be written in a way that you said leads to somewhere that's filled with hope and beauty and possibility. So truly, thank you so much. We know this is a vulnerable task. We know this is asking for 
certain amounts of, you know, perhaps some discomfort at times, but it really, I think, does bring some some true hope and insight to that people affected and some humanity to the people that go through addiction because we don't see people go from not go from like human being to to totally losing their humanity like they're still human beings and they go through this this incredibly confusing and difficult thing that we are coming to understand as addiction and i just thank you so much i you know congrats on three years congrats on rebuilding like inspiring so thank you so much um to wrap things up as aaron would say another great episode uh anyway yeah you and i for the key night